As some of you know and some of you asked me to share uh, about, I went with the American Israel Education Fund Foundation uh, to Israel with 16 other rabbis. We had incredible access. We had amazing uh, learning opportunities. Uh, and so I'll share a few of my reflections from that trip with you. I went to Israel eager to learn. I went to Israel eager to have the kind of access we were going to have to absolute top officials, to people that most of us don't usually get to hear from in person and off the record. Everything was off the record. So what did I learn while I was in Israel? I learned that the internal divisions, as well as the divisions and the tensions in the region, are worse than ever. That there's less hope now for a two-state solution than ever before. The tension between Israelis and Palestinians is growing. I was there while the events happened uh, on Al-Aqsa, where the metal detectors were put in, and then there was rioting in the West Bank and clashes with police and violence that ensued after that, where a family, several generations of a family were murdered at their birthday Shabbat dinner table. The issues that surround the pluralism concerns of those of us who are not Orthodox Jews have experienced a rollback in what we thought was progress. I was there as women of the wall uh, were dealing with Netanyahu rolling back the commitment to a plaza that was not segregated as well as rolling back things regarding conversion and how they will be recognized in the state of Israel. We heard about Syria, we went to the border, and we heard a retired colonel, she explained for over an hour exactly who's involved with what in Syria and how. It took her over an hour using each of us as, okay, you're, you're a Syrian army. That's a Syrian army. Then she got somebody else who was going to be the rebels. Then she got somebody else. who, And this went on and on and on until there were like 15 people standing up, each one representing a faction. And then she said, now you hate you. But you'll work with you if you say it went on and on and on the complications that are happening on the ground in Syria and in the countries surrounding. We heard from a retired brigadier general who told us in no uncertain terms that what is happening right now in the Middle East is that Iran is making a play for the Middle East to become Shia, a Shia caliphate. And it is working its way across the map, working its way. It's already this force for Shia Islam taking over the Middle East is already at Lebanon, at Syria, already. Hezbollah is in Lebanon with two factories retrofitting missiles. They have so many missiles aimed already at Israel, and Hezbollah is now an army. It is absolutely one of the largest armies in the Middle East. If nothing's done to change what's happening right now, everyone there that we spoke to fears a third intifada. The tension simply cannot hold. The status quo will not hold much longer. If nothing is done about the rights of non-Orthodox Jews, Reform, Reconstructionist, Conservative Jews, Unaffiliated Jews, if nothing is done about that, we will see a deterioration in American Jewish support for Israel, certainly among our young, and we see it already. If nothing is done to address Iran's moves in the region, it is only going to deteriorate further. I came home incredibly well informed and very seriously depressed. 
Then I came home and was looking to shift gears and Charlottesville happened. So glad to be back in our country. So glad to be back in the United States where we have a reminder of the incredible anger and fear and things that are erupting in our own country. The level of vitriol around any kind of political conversation these days is terrifying. I'm very concerned. I spoke a little bit about this last year, and I told you I was very concerned about the state of our union. It's only gotten worse. I'm seriously concerned about the health of this republic. And when I read an article in Foreign Affairs magazine saying, is America still safe for democracy, it did nothing to cure any of my fear. Instead, it intensified it with quotes like, scholars have long identified political polarization as a central factor behind democratic breakdown. We have two incredibly ideologically homogenous parties that we've never had before. We have fewer cross-cutting issues that temper some of our partisan politics and conflict. We have fewer moderate members within each party critical to making legislative deals. Voters feel a new high of animosity towards politicians and voters of the other party. Weakening of our establishment news media, as we heard from Rabbi Rubin last night, means that there's less accountability for politicians and voters see almost all political events through purely partisan lenses. The growing gap between the richest Americans and the rest of the country accentuates this polarization terribly. And so we have gridlock, Congress passing fewer and fewer laws and leaving important issues unresolved. This is a very serious situation. We are a very young democracy. Women have only been voting since the 20s, and African Americans have only had real access to voting since the 70s. We are a very young democracy, and if we are not careful, we are poised to lose exactly the kind of freedom, the kind of conversation that we need in this country to be a force in this world for good. Krista Tippett, in her new book, Becoming Wise, writes, In America, many features of public life are better suited to adolescence than adulthood. We don't do things adults learn to do, like calm ourselves and become less narcissistic. Much of politics and media sends us in the opposite infantilizing direction. We reduce great questions of meaning and morality to issues and simplify them to two sides, allowing pundits and partisans to frame them in irreconcilable extremes. But most of us don't see the world this way. And it's not the way the world actually works. In Israel, there is a democratic system that's different from ours, the parliamentary system, which means there is even more infighting in Israel uh, than there is in this country. What are we going to do? Every single person that we spoke to said, you're Americans. We know you're a group of Americans, so we know we have to end on a note of hope. <laughs> I'm talking to a bunch of Americans, so I'm not going to leave you without some hope. <laughs> Vincent Harding, when speaking to Tippett, said, Now is a powerful time in our country for young people and others to be asking the question, what are we for? Do we exist for some other reason than competing with China 
or finding the best possible technological advances? Are there some things that are even deeper that we are meant for, meant to be, meant to do, meant to achieve? Jimmy Baldwin used to like to talk about us achieving ourselves, finding who we are, what we're for, and making that possible for each other. I, of course, when I'm looking for hope and I'm looking for answers, I go to our tradition. And recently we studied in Deuteronomy the commandment that if you see your enemy or your friend, it doesn't matter which one, if you see their ass and it's lost, you must return it. And in the ancient world, if if the person that that ass belonged to lived really far away, it was an incredible imposition for you to have to bother yourself with now returning this animal to its owners. It could be a real pain in the donkey to (laughs) deal with. But the commandment reads an interesting way in Hebrew. How does it say you can't ignore the situation? It says, Lo lehit alem. Lo tuchal lehit alem. This verb lehit alem comes from the word olam, world, forever. Olam. But it also comes from the verb to disappear. alem to cause something to go away. So what does this verb mean? It's a reflexive verb in Hebrew, which means it's something you do to yourself. Lo lihitalem, you are not allowed to disappear yourself. You have to show up. That's the first thing Torah teaches us. Lo lihitalem, not to disappear ourselves. The second thing you're familiar with from the Passover Seder, and if you get the tune stuck in your head for the rest of the day, don't blame me, I'm really sorry. Vehi she'amda. The second part of that, that we're used to hearing at the Passover Seder, not one has risen up against us, but rather in every generation, someone has risen against us to destroy us. But there's a wonderful teaching from Rabbi Abraham Mordechai Alter, the Alter Rebbe, who said, don't read not one Read instead, not one, meaning shelo echad, when we're not one. Shelo echad, when we are not one, omdim aleinu lechaloteinu. They will rise up to destroy us. We must be united, says the Alter Rebbe. Never, never has this been more true. As Americans, we must be echad. As Jews, we must be echad. As Jewish Americans supporting a strong U.S.-Israel relationship, we must be echad. We must be united. And our country as Americans, we have to address, however uncomfortable it makes us, we have to look at the issues that are leaving some people behind, that are leaving them so cynical and despairing and angry that we have a Charlottesville. What's happening for people? We don't have to like how they respond. We don't have to like them. Are they going to blame us? They're always going to blame us. Can we just start there? Okay. They're going to blame the Jews. Fine. But we still have to address the issues that are making people in our country so fearful, so angry, so willing to do crazy, crazy things. As Reconstructionist Jews... We must stand with Israel 
as a, for a strong U.S.-Israel relationship more than ever before. Every single person we spoke to, what, the Palestinian top negotiator, the longest sitting Israeli negotiator, the popular columnist and author Yossi Klein-Halevi, the executive director of the Israel Religious Action Center, Anat Hoffman, everybody we spoke to said the same thing. Israelis don't care about religious pluralism. Forget about it. It's not going to happen. Oh, good. Okay. So we're supposed to keep coming here and we're supposed to keep supporting Israel when Israel doesn't even recognize... The only state in the world, the only country in the world where I'm not recognized as a rabbi is the state of Israel. I'm supposed to keep coming back for this? And you're telling me there's no hope that they're, they're not going to care about pluralism? Every single one of them said that's right. But they care about you if you support Israel. If you show up, if you don't disappear, but you stay in the hard conversation and they know you are a Zionist, you're allowed to have Israel look however you want it to, to work for that, to push for that, to influence that. And you can if you show up. They don't have to care about pluralism, but they care that you do. It's not easy to stay in conversations that aren't comfortable. Lolihit alem is a hard commandment to fulfill, to really show up. So I urge you to consider finding ways that you can participate in the conversations that are important, both in this country and in the Israel-America conversation. APAC well, was part of this progressive rabbi's trip that I went on, and um, I understood ever more clearly why it is we have to go to the policy conference, why it is we have to show up. We don't have to agree as Jews, but we have to be echad. We have to show up. And we can argue. That's what we do. It's a sport for us. It's the only sport Jews excel in. <laughs> By nature is arguing. It's okay. But if we don't show up, we don't influence anything that's happening at the big people's table. Everyone agreed that we spoke with. Every single person we spoke with agreed. Nothing is going to happen anytime soon that's going to be big about solutions, about ideas, about leadership. Nothing is going to happen anytime soon. What they all are beginning to talk about and understand is that it's going to take a very long time in Israel for things to change. In the Middle East, for things to change. Didn't matter what side, what perspective, where Arab, Jew, Palestinian, liberal, conservative, it didn't matter. They all get it. It is going to take small steps and people willing to engage in building relationships, that is what it's going to take to build a network that is strong enough that when there's a deal ready to be struck of some kind, and it may not be in our lifetimes is what I'm hearing now, people. But when it's ready, when it happens, there must be a strong network in place to support it or it won't hold. It's not going to come from the top. Everyone is clear about that. Their people at the top are too entrenched in their own narratives, their own stories in that country, in this country. It's not going to come from there. It's going to come from us supporting the kinds of movements we want to see on the ground, the people engaging in that work every day. It will happen when we stop making all kinds of assumptions about each other and start showing up. 
Not to disappear ourselves. The minute someone opens their mouths, we disappear ourselves. We've already convinced ourselves who they are and what they think. I was in Israel and doing an action with Anat Hoffman because buses are supposed to be desegregated in Israel. But in the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic neighborhoods, the men sit in the front and the women sit in the back. But it's illegal for buses to be segregated. And so Anat had us do an, an action. And that was to get on at the first stop when the bus was empty, five women, and to sit all over the bus. <laughs> so that when the men got on, they had a choice to make. Were they going to sit with the women in the front or were they going to go to the back of the bus? Yeah, thank you. Um, and so uh, we engaged in this action. And so I'm sitting in my seat and eventually, you know, people start to get on as the bus continues. And eventually a woman wearing a wig uh, and modest clothing sits next to me. I understand right away that she's Orthodox. And she sits down and I smile and I say, Shalom. And she says, I said, Shalom. She said, I know you from somewhere. I said, I don't think so. And she said, I don't know you at all. And you just said to me, Hello? And I said, Ken? And she says, Wow. Wow. And she begins talking about manners and how we, no one has any manners anymore and nobody's polite anymore and why can't people just smile and say hello to each other like human beings? And she starts to quote a line from the Talmud and I finish the line of Talmud and she's like, wow. <laughs> and so it was like very sweet. It was very nice. And then she says, Atosa action. Are you doing an action? And I thought, here it goes. Our, this lovely rapport, this lovely thing that we had going on, it's gone now. Because she knows I'm doing a sit-in in her neighborhood on her bus. And so I went, Ken, mm-hmm. And she says, wow. <laughs> she said, Wow. And I thought, here comes the vitriol. Here comes, right, the whole thing. And she says, you don't know me and you said hello. Not the conversation I expected. Not the answer I expected. If we don't take these kinds of risks to talk to each other, to tell the truth as respectfully and gently as we can, we won't have any room to be surprised by the woman in the wig against whose culture I was doing a protest action. When we treat each other as human beings, when we show up, all kinds of things become possible. We become able to hear. We don't have to agree, but can we hear what someone else's concerns are, what someone else's perspective is? It will take people like her and people like us willing to be open to that conversation. And there are places where it's happening. There are relationships being built on the ground. We saw evidence of it all over the country. One Arab woman is working so hard on behalf of Arab women and children for education, for a better life, for a better economic future, so that there's less possibility of 20% of Israel's Arab population becoming radicalized. Kuwait has funded this amazing new town, Ruwabi. And... 
It's an Arab city with shops and restaurants and cafes and lovely apartments. And it is a future for the young people of Ruabi to feel pride in where they live. They're not waiting. Those people who built Ruabi are not waiting for there to be a settlement. They're not waiting for a two-state solution. They're not waiting for anybody to fund it. They're going out and finding the money. And they're building a beautiful city of the future right now. So that Arabs have somewhere to go. Palestinians have somewhere to go to say, this is ours and we're proud of it. And so we're invested. We have what to lose now. There are teacher exchanges happening between Arabs and Israelis where they now are realizing when they take a teacher, an Arab teacher, and put that teacher with an Israeli teacher in an Israeli classroom, it completely changes how those children, and it doesn't matter how old the children are, by the way. It works with older students. It completely changes how they see Arabs. And the same happens when you take an Israeli teacher and put them in an Arab school. In Nefrata, there's a settlement where quietly, under the radar, they are building relationships with the Arab villages around them, and they have to do it in secret so that those Arab folks who want to speak with them, those leaders, don't get murdered. Once upon a time, writes Krista Tippett, maps that revealed the edges and frontiers of the known world were tools of the few. But we live in a world whose contours are formed by story, not conquest, and shaped and reshaped continuously by connection. We are the points on the map. Our imaginations haven't caught up with this world we inhabit yet. Our eyes can't quite focus on the new human-driven frontiers. And so we're still a bit captive each of us in different ways, to the old arbiters of importance, to the proverbial radar. Almost everything and everyone changing the world now is what we forever refer to as under the radar. The radar is broken. We will have to do things as a country to affect the future of what's happening in the Middle East. We saw four Syrian men Terribly, terribly deformed. One of them has no face. Israel is building him a face. He's had 17 surgeries. These men were willing to speak with us about their experience. They knew who we were. They knew we were 16 rabbis from the United States. They're kept in a separate part of the hospital. And we went to visit with them, these incredibly dignified, beautiful, big men in their hospital attire. They'd been there, some of them, two years. And when they were asked where they wanted to go, Jordan or Israel, they said Israel for treatment. And the man who they told us about, who they had just built a jaw out of some plastic, something or other, bandages everywhere except the part of one eye. Because he has no face. And we heard their stories. And we listened to them. And we asked questions respectfully. And we listened. We really listened to their answers. And as we were about to leave, I said, I have one more question. And I said, we speak to a lot of people when we get home. We have a lot of people who come to listen to us. What do you want me to tell them when I get home? And one man, this beautiful man, so dignified, started to cry and said, please tell them to help us end this war. 
for our children, for the innocent victims of this horrible war. We are going to have to do something as a country. We are going to have to have a Middle East policy, which we do not have, nor have we had. We must start to invest in some kind of method for stopping what's happening. The Brigadier General assured me we will have to. We will have to. What do we do with our differences and our opinions, however deeply we feel them? What do we do? Well, one option is to do what they do at the wall right now. They can enforce whatever kind of behavior they want. It's an ultra-Orthodox synagogue. And so if I want to go and I'm on a trip and I want to go to the wall and I want to go close to the wall, I have to put on a huge schmatte to cover my shoulders. And they give it to you. They give you a huge, horrible schmatte to wear. And I don't have a choice. I either put it on and look ridiculous and feel ashamed and go to the wall or I can't go to the wall. That's one way we can treat these things, all of these things that divide us. We can say, you'll put on a shmata or you won't come close to here. You won't come close to my sacred stuff unless you put on what I tell you you have to wear because you have to behave the way I say or else. That's one way. But there's another way, Carol. Another way is to take our opinions and the way we see the world and craft and create something beautiful out of them. This is the talit of women of the wall. That's another way to express who we are, to not give up on our ideals, to not compromise what we know and believe to be the right way forward, but to do it beautifully, to make a statement that's about what we think can and should be, not you have to do it my way. Everyone, if you can have one of those tally totes, um, and if you order one, it supports the work of women of the wall who are fighting for all kinds of pluralism in Israel. I'll close with a quote, again, from Krista Tippett, that I believe the late Harold Shapiro really embodied, so ready to listen with an open heart and deep respect for people with whom he disagreed stridently. The questions that can lead us are already alive in our midst, waiting to be summoned and made real. It is a joy to name them. It is a gift to plant them in our senses, our bodies, the places we inhabit, the part of the world we can see and touch and help to heal. It is a privilege to hold something robust and resilient called hope, which has the power to shift the world on its axis. May we this year have the courage, not to disappear. May we have the strength to show up. May we have the willingness to listen, even with those whom we vehemently disagree, to what their suffering and their despair is about. May we find the holy tenacity to be echad, to be together, to find unity. And I swear I wrote this before, Rabbi Rubin. <laughs> may we find unity, that we may be one nation under God, that we may create liberty 
and justice for all. Shana Tova.